what did we get when Christmas came along? Now, we all know what we want for Christmas, but what is it we really needed? What did we get? The, the three wise men brought three gifts. The gift of giving at Christmas really began at a manger, the gold, and it's in your notes. The gold was received by a person who is in high standing. Here's the Son of God as a baby who would have never been given gold unless, of course, he was a king. Then there was incense or frankincense, which was a symbol of worship and used in all religious anointing and burned during special offerings. This foreshadows the ministry of Christ on the earth. And then myrrh. Myrrh would have been the most interesting of all the gifts of the wise men because myrrh was used at the time of burial. It was a gift that said it would be like bringing a coffin to a child's birthday party. What they symbolized in that was that this child was going to die for the sins of the world. And so even in the giving of these gifts, they're symbolic in the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ. Right after the Civil War, America became the center of gift giving in the world. Everything kind of spun out of America and the world began to embrace this idea of giving gifts at Christmas. In the early 1900s when catalogs, the old Sears catalog, I remember taking the old Sears catalog and turning down the page just in case my mom and dad didn't know what I wanted. I'd turn down the page or I'd mark the page. I'd turn it down real big you know, because you got the Sears Christmas catalog. Well, I wasn't born in 1900, but I was born in a year. This is none of your business. But, uh, <laughs> but with catalogs and with mail service, in the early 1900s, gift giving began to explode. Now, Americans spend $5 billion a day during holiday season. From Black Friday until Christmas Day, $5 billion a day are spent on buying Christmas gifts. That means that $2.8 million are being spent every minute on buying gifts. The average person in the United States will spend over $1,000 on giving gifts. Ace Collins, in his book, Stories Behind the Traditions of Christmas, writes, while many think Christmas gift-giving is rank commercialism and the cause of a great deal of stress, when put into proper perspective, these presents can open the door to teaching about the real meaning of the holidays. Christ as a king who came, not to take, but to give. His gift was the ultimate sacrifice and therefore brings each Christmas gift into focus. So if you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Isaiah. If, if you don't know where Isaiah is, you can go to the table of contents in the front or you can go to Psalms and Proverbs and just keep going right and you'll find it. Isaiah chapter 9. This is the earliest birth announcement ever given. There's never been a birth announcement given 
hundreds of years before a baby is born. Not only before the baby is born, but before his great, 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 great grandparents were born. This child's birth was foretold. Isaiah 6, chapter 9 and verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. These four descriptive names tell us of four gifts we get when we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if you're on social media or if you're just paying attention at all, now, you know, you get Facebook posts and it's a reveal announcement, whether the child is a boy or a girl. And so everybody, you start seeing people hit and like and comment on the reveal announcements. And then you'll see some kid that says, I'm going to have a baby brother or I'm going to have a, a baby sister. And, and then there's an announcement about a shower. And then there's an announcement about what the parents are going to pay to make sure that this kid has everything they want from here on out. In other words, grandparents do for their grandchildren what they never did for their children. That's basically the rule of having a baby. If you want to get a lot of stuff, give your parents, grandkids, and you'll get a lot of stuff. Then you can be specific about what you want. I'm just giving you hints, folks. I'm just, just trying to help you. But I want you to imagine, this is a reveal party. The God of heaven is revealing to Isaiah to write down in a book the birth of a child. Now, later on in that book, he's going to tell us that that child is going to suffer and he's going to bear the price for our sins. But here early on, after Isaiah has seen the Lord, he reveals that this child is going to be born and he's going to have some names. Now, I want you to notice what he says. He says, a child will be born, a son given. That speaks to the dual nature of Jesus, that he is all God and all man. Jesus wasn't born as a son. He was already a son. He was given as a child. Here's a child, a son given, a child born. God took on human nature. This is a prophetic announcement about who Jesus is. This is not just any baby announcement. This is an announcement of a king coming to earth in the form of a baby to take on the form of man so that he could pay the price for our sins. The first thing he says is he's a wonderful counselor. Now, all of us have had lousy counseling at some point in our lives. Somebody's told us something that we ought to do and we did it and then we walked away and thought, why did I ever do that? It's bad advice. But when God describes Jesus, he's a wonderful counselor. He has great wisdom. In other words, this gift of Jesus helps us in parenting. It helps us to manage our lives. It helps us to make decisions to raise our kids. Because we can get an education but not know how to live out life. So here, here's the situation. The world is full of smart people who aren't wise. Do you understand that? 
The world is full of smart people who aren't wise. I mean, they, they, they make an they, they may can be an, a, a physicist or an engineer, but they can't tell you how to do common things. They lack common sense. But here's the simple questions that they can't answer. Who am I? Why am I here? And is there meaning to life? Apart from Jesus Christ, you will not get the right answer to those questions. They are three great questions to ask someone who doesn't know Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you really don't know who you are. You may know your name. You may know your social security number. You may know how much your income is. You may know where you live, but you don't really know who you are. And especially you don't know why you're here. Well, I'm here because I've got a job. I'm here because I'm a student. I'm here because I'm married. I'm here because of this. But why are you here? Why were you born? And is there meaning to life? So, let's, let's just look at those. Who am I? I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm a person that cannot save myself by my good works, by good deeds, by being nice, by my good outweighing my bad, by being religious, by joining a church, by being baptized. None of that can save me. Who am I? I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And if I'm saved, I'm a saved sinner who couldn't have gotten there without Christ. Second question, why am I here? You and I are here because God had a plan and a design for your life. God has a purpose for you. He knows the number of your days. And he has something he wants you to do while you are on planet Earth. And is there any meaning to life? Can I submit to you that there is meaning in Jesus saying, come and follow me. The greatest meaning of life, no matter what your vocation, no matter what your socioeconomic background, no matter where you live, the greatest meaning of life is found in following Jesus. The video that you just saw from the International Mission Board, from the lady involved in witchcraft, that she found life in Christ, not in witchcraft, not in curses, not in voodoo, not in making people fearful of what might happen if they didn't follow their little rules. She found life in Christ. There's meaning in life. There's purpose in life. We are to abide in Christ. We're to follow Christ. We're to love Christ. We're to be fishers of men. When Jesus left this earth, he was wise enough to not leave us alone. So as a wonderful counselor, he said to his disciples one day, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. There's going to be another like me that's going to come. And he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, not because we deserve it, but because we need it to know who we are and why we're here and to know the meaning of life. And so the Holy Spirit comes, and Jesus says the Spirit guides us into all truth. So God gave the gift of his Son, the Son gave the gift of the Spirit, and the Son, through his death on a cross and his resurrection, gives us meaning for life. That's a wise counselor who can come into your life and tell you what you need to do to live abundantly and to live a great life. He's the mighty God. 
He's the mighty God. Now, we, we talk about power in our culture today. There are power brokers and power movements and football power conferences and power teams. And we try to empower people. And we think power is money and money is power. That's not the power that God is talking about here. He's the mighty God, which means there's nothing that is impossible for him. There's nothing beyond his reach. There's nothing beyond his knowledge. What we need to understand is we don't have the power we think we have apart from Christ. Because most of our life we can't change. And much of our life we cannot control. And so when you can't change it and when you can't control it, when there's a crisis, when there's a crisis in your finances, when there's terrorism, when the government it doesn't seem safe to trust, when all the things of this world begin to happen, there's a mighty God. And guess what? He doesn't sit on the Supreme Court. He overrules the Supreme Court. He doesn't sit in the White House. He overrules the White House. He does not sit in Congress. He overrules the Congress. The Bible says that God laughs at the nations. You show me a nation that mocks God, and I'll show you a mighty God that will one day put that nation down. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says he's so mighty that one day he's going to change everything. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He's so mighty that he can raise the dead to life. He's so mighty that he can make all things new. He's so mighty that he can do anything, anywhere, at any time, and he doesn't need your help to do it. That's how mighty he is. Jesus is our source of that might. He is the mighty God, the mighty God. He has power over death and hell and the grave. The three things that we fear as mankind more than anything else is death and hell and the grave. And he has power over death and hell and the grave. And the Holy Spirit empowers us. Now, when, when God gave us the Spirit, he gave us an enabling power to do that which we could not do on our own. If you read your Bible, you will see from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, the Word speaks of the power of God. God spoke and creation came into existence. God made man in his image. God sent a flood. The flood receded. God provided for a people in the wilderness. God delivered out of bondage and captivity. God raised kings up like David and Solomon. God put kings down. God built, and he moved, and he changed all of these things. When he showed up on earth, he healed the sick, and he raised the dead, and he caused the blind to see. And when he was on the cross, and they thought that he had been defeated and beaten, and the religious leader said, that's it, we're through with him. Three days later, he said, I'm back. <laughs> and he's still here. The tomb is empty. That's a sign of a mighty God. And when that mighty God begins to inhabit our lives and we were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and the Bible says that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, speaking of the devil, that means that God has empowered the church to change the world. He's empowered us to change this community. He's empowered us to break 
free from the chains of captivity of our past and from the bondage of our failures. He has empowered us to live different lives and to be different kind of people, to be salt and light in this world. That power comes to set captives free. And we can talk to people in captivity because we were once in captivity ourselves. He's the everlasting father. The everlasting Father. This is, teaches us about the deity of Christ. Now, we make a distinction between God the Father and God the Son. But here, God the Father is calling His Son the everlasting Father. Let me just ask you to write this in your notes or in your Bible somewhere. What God is saying when He says everlasting Father is that everything I am, my Son is. He's not less than me. He is me. Everything that I am, my son is. And so when he's the everlasting father, for those of you that do not have a good image of a father, he's an everlasting father. He doesn't walk out on you and divorce you. He's an everlasting father. He's there when nobody else is there. He stands by your side when everybody else walks out. He's an everlasting father. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the one that stays with you. We come before a God who treats us as his children. We are sons and daughters of God, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus did enough, a new birth. And then he's the Prince of Peace. I just sat down when I was studying this message and thought about how unpeaceful this world really is. I mean, you've got an alarm system in your house for a reason. You lock your car when you get out of it and go into a store for five minutes for a reason. You lock it the minute you get back in it for a reason. You're afraid some days to turn on the news for a reason. This world lacks peace. And no army can give that peace. And no political leader can give that peace. The Prince of Peace can give that peace. Our world is anxious, restless, confused, fearful, at war, divided, polarized, hateful, and fighting. And the reason it's that way is because at the core, man without Christ is at war with God. And if you are at war with God, you cannot be at peace with others. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let me ask you, are you at war with God today? Are, are you at war with God today? So I'm not at war with God. Well, if Christ is not your Savior and Lord, you're at war with God because you're trying to run your life, you're trying to fix your life, you're trying to control your life, and you don't want God getting in your business. So you are at war with God. Billions of people in this world are at war with God. Because they're saying, I don't need Jesus. I don't need to surrender my life to him. I don't have any sin I need to confess. 
I don't need to change. I can run my life. I can fix my life. I can tell you this, either today or tomorrow or someday in the future, you're going to reach a moment in your life where you have absolutely lost control and you're going to be at war with the one person that can take control. Are you at peace with God? Are you at war with God? I want to ask you to turn to the book of Philippians because I want you to see what Paul says to the believers. This is what God gives to those who know Christ as the Prince of Peace. Here's what we need to do. Here's what we need to know. Philippians chapter 4. You know these verses, but I want you to read them with me and see what God is saying to us about the only way we can change the way we think. Because left to ourselves, we're in trouble. Throwing our hands open and surrender to God, we're at peace. Jesus got on a boat one day and said, peace be still. He was speaking to a storm, but he was also speaking to his disciples. You need to calm down. I've got this. Philippians 4 and verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the what? Peace of God. Underline it because you need to underline something else in a minute. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. In other words, the world cannot even begin to figure out why the Christian in crisis has peace. The peace of God which passes all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You want to know what the Prince of Peace does? He takes control of your mind. He takes control of your heart. That's the peace of God. I can tell you, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out who are the Christians at a funeral and who are the saved people. Because the Christians have a peace because they know a God who raises the dead and they know that there's a place called heaven. The people that don't know Christ, they don't know what's happening. And so they come up with all kinds of theories. You just kind of disappear. You know, you go to purgatory and somebody prays for you for a thousand years and finally gets you out. You Reincarnation. I mean, tr truthfully, I, you know, reincarnation, you come back as like this and this and this. And then finally you come back as a human being again. Can, can I tell you, I don't want to come back as a worm, a cow, or anything else. And I certainly don't want to go through puberty again. So uh, reincarnation is not a good plan. Shirley MacLaine is convinced she's in reincarnation she's going to come back as a toaster. And... Uh, What does peace do? It guards your heart. When there's a storm, when there's a trial, when somebody walks out of your life, when somebody breaks your heart, the peace of God is there that gives you what nothing else can give you. Verse 8, finally, brethren. So if he's guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, the peace of God is guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, then, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and... 
the God of peace need to draw a line. The peace of God and the God of peace. That line goes both ways. When God is guarding my heart and my mind as a believer, then I have the God of peace, but I also have the peace of God. And sometimes you can't explain that to somebody. You just know that God's given it to you. So let me give you a couple of thoughts here. The peace of God is a test whether or not we are in God's will. The peace of God is a test of whether or not we are in God's will. Colossians 3.15 says, says it this way. Let the peace of God rule, or the word there means umpire, your heart. Let the peace of God umpire your heart. In other words, you're standing in life, and I mean, you just seems like everybody's throwing a ball right at your head, and you just don't know if you can take it anymore. Let the peace of God umpire your heart. Let God rule over what's going on. You see, the God of peace reminds us of the character of God, but the peace rules the day when Christ rules the heart. The day that Christ rules your heart, peace begins to rule. Everything begins to change. So I want to ask you a question. Do you know the peace of God? Have you met Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? I did not ask you if you've joined a church. I did not ask you if you are very religious. I did not ask you if you've been baptized. I didn't ask you if you've been confirmed. I asked you a simple question. Do you know Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace? Because if you're here today, you're not here by accident. You're in this place because God wanted you to have the peace that only he can offer. It's for you. And it's for me. God wanted you to know something that the world doesn't know. But when you know it, you'll want the world to know it. And that is God can take a wrecked, messed up life and give peace. That God can change a person from the inside out. The world tries to change from the outside in. Clean up on the outside and get better and you'll feel better. The world works from the outside in. God works from the inside out. My friend Gary Frazier tells me about how many years he witnessed to our God Yuval in Israel. He said, I kept telling him, you know, here's a guy who knows all the sites. He knows everything. I mean, he knows the history of the nation. He knows the Old Testament. He can take you to the New Testament sites. Knows all those things like the back of his hand. And Gary witnessed to him for years and said, you've all, you got to get it from here to here. you got to get it from knowing it in your head to knowing it in your heart. And I'll never forget, Gary said, I'll never forget the time I got off an airplane in Tel Aviv. And Yuval did not have to tell me a thing. I knew that it had gone from his head to his heart because his face was full of the peace of God. Are you full of the peace of God? Trials are going to come. Problems are going to come. Life is messy. If you don't have Christ then you're just going to fight the battle on your own. 
You're going to try to deal with it in your strength. And one day, you're going to fall to pieces and you're going to be on the floor in a puddle or curled up in the fetal position and saying, I don't know why life is this way. And God is trying to help you before you get to that point or if you are in that point to say, you don't have to do this alone. I am with you and I am for you. Would you bow your heads, please? Our staff are going to be here at the front. And I want to ask you a simple question today. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? There's no better time than Christmas when Christ came to give himself for us. There's no better time to say, I give myself to Christ. I want to give myself to Jesus today. And so I'm going to ask you from where you are, just with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, and if you know Christ, I'm going to ask you to be praying. I'm going to ask you if you're in this room today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, in just a moment we're going to stand. We're not going to sing anything. We're just going to stand, and Heather's going to play softly. And, and when we stand, I'm going to ask you to step out from where you are, whether you're on the back row of the balcony in the mezzanines or in the front or in the middle of an aisle, wherever you are, listen People here are praying for you right now. God loves you. And he sent his son to die for you. He's a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, prince of peace. You will never regret giving your heart to Jesus. Never. And today is the day of salvation. The Bible says that. Now is the accepted time. You know what the devil will tell you? You can wait. But there's no promise of tomorrow. If you, What you're going to do for Jesus, you ought to do now. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. But the Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God is raised from the dead, we shall be saved. So I'm going to pray just a quick prayer. Then we're going to stand. I'm going to ask you to step up and do what people do every week in this church, and that's come to a personal relationship in Jesus Christ. Just find one of these men and say, I need Jesus today. I need to trust Jesus today. Father, in the name of Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace and the only one that can put people's lives back together, I pray for people to come today to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. If you're a believer, I'm going to ask you to be praying for people that need to make decisions today. You step out. You come right now.